Well, it takes a community to build a community, doesn't it? Um, and whether we're talking about uh, partnering with uh, our sister Ebony with the home that uh, God through us were able to build, or whether we're talking about missions trips, uh, or whether we're talking about whether we're talking about the dozens of tasks that have already happened to make this morning possible, it takes a community. It takes a community to build a community. And uh, if you want to find um, uh, your way into this church community, if you're interested in that, one of, the, one of the easiest and best ways is to find your way through serving and meeting needs with love and helping others. And so... Um, uh, out in the foyer, after our services, I would just love it if you could uh, stop by a table that's at the pillar that is hosted by our Connections Ministry team. And our team happens to be at the back right underneath the clock. Janice and Chuck and Ruth, would you just kind of wave here? They're in the teal blue shirts. That is that the color of blue we're talking about, Janice? Okay, so uh, uh, Janice and Chuck and Ruth uh, would just be more than happy to pray with you and also to help you uh, just find some ways where you can meet some needs with love and to serve others. And there's information out on the table that we would just like for you to be aware of because it takes a community. It takes a, so much has already happened this morning to make this worship gathering possible. And so I want to give you the opportunity to, to be a blessing in someone else's life. And uh, Janice and the Connections team will be there to help. All right? All right. Wonderful. Um, well, our scripture reading this morning is going to come from the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. You'll find 2 Thessalonians in, uh, in your church Bibles, the black uh, copies of uh, the Bible that's in the pouch in front of you. You'll find that on page 989, 989. And if you don't have a Bible to call your own and you would like uh, to... Uh, to have one, please, uh, please feel free to take one of those black Bibles and write your name on it and just receive it as a gift from this church family. We're going to begin a uh, brief series over the book of Second Thessalonians. It's not a very long book in the Bible, and so we're going to be uh, spending one week on each chapter, and today we're going to look at chapter one of Second Thessalonians. You can follow along with me as I read. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Well, I have two sons, 25 years of age and 21 years of age, and my older son is a police officer, and in his spare time, he teaches CrossFit. You know what CrossFit is? It's a strength training and conditioning program, and he likes to show me different fitness training systems. So the other day, he said to me, Dad, you got to check out this documentary on the Navy SEALs. It's their training program. It's called BUDS. Have you ever heard of BUDS? It's an acronym. Basic Underwater Demolition SEALs Training. It's the training course for SEALs. It's, it is brutal. It is a brutal and grueling six-month test of physical endurance and mental toughness and true teamwork. The dropout rate is Nearly 90%. In this particular documentary that I was watching, 83 candidates entered BUDS and only 16 made it to graduation. And from hour one, it is orchestrated chaos. I mean, there's push-ups, pull-ups, crunches, tricep dips. They're being screamed at hosed with water. It is absolute chaos, and the sun hasn't even come up yet. At the center of the SEALs training compound, there is this brass bell that everybody can see. And all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. At any point in time in the training, you can stop what you're doing. You And ring the bell and no more push-ups. No more pull-ups. No more getting screamed at. No more getting hosed with water. No, nothing. All you got to do to quit is ring the bell. Now in the documentary, it was noted that nobody quits in the first hour. Nobody. Nobody rings the bell the first hour. And when asked why... This is what the Navy SEAL instructor said. Why doesn't anybody quit in the first hour? This is what he said. Because these candidates are under the illusion that it's going to get better. (laughs) I thought about that. I thought about that. What was he trying to say? Well, you know, it's only hour one of day one, six months to go. 
You see, it's easy at the start. And it's easy when you're done at the end. It's the middle that's hard. (laughs) It's the middle that's hard. Well, that's true not just of SEALs training. Diets are like that. It's easy. First day, it's easy when you're done. It's the middle that's hard. A, a, A university degree program, it's easy at first. It's easy when you're done. It's the middle that's hard. When you're running a marathon, easy at first. Easy when you're done. It's the middle that's hard. A church building project, it's easy at first. It's easy when you're done. It's the middle that's difficult. We're in the middle, by the way. We're in the middle. It's the middle that's hard. Paul David Tripp is an author and a pastor. He wrote these words. We spend a lot of our lives caught in the middle. We head to work and we get caught in the middle of a traffic jam. We enter a conversation and we get caught in the middle of an argument. We make an investment and then get caught in the middle of a market downturn. We join a church and we get caught in the middle of something, a a conflict, a disagreement, a disappointment, a doctrinal issue. We dream of our future and then get caught in the middle of things we did not foresee and would not have chosen. He says we really do spend much of our time caught in the middle of being caught in the middle. Now, our verses this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tell of a church caught in the middle. They're caught in the middle of persecutions and afflictions, Paul says in verse 4. Their culture, the ancient city of Thessalonica, had criticized and marginalized and had been harassing these believers for their faith. And so Paul writes 2 Thessalonians basically on the heels of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians come to us around the year A.D. 50 or A.D. 51. 2 Thessalonians was a follow-up to this First letter that Paul sent only months before, and both letters arrive within a year of when the church started. So if you're a new believer and you are wondering what books of the Bible would be helpful for me, a new believer, First and Second Thessalonians are perfect. Because they're intended to encourage new believers. They're intended to urge new believers, especially believers who are paying a steep price for their faith. And what Paul wants more than anything else from these believers in Thessalonica is that they stand firm. He wants them to stand firm. I don't want anybody ringing the bell. I want you to endure. I want you to persevere. That's the theme of 2 Thessalonians. And this theme emerges very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15, are the, that's the big idea of the entire letter. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. See it? It's right there. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, that was when Paul first preached to them, or by our letter. And he's referring to 1 Thessalonians there, you see. Stand firm. And what's encouraging 
in chapter 1 is Paul says that they are. Even under the pressure of persecution, Paul says in verse 3, your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And Paul uses a horticultural term when he says growing abundantly. It's a word from the plant world to picture faith and love blossoming and flourishing and thriving organically in this bed of decomposed matter, manure, the junk and gunk of life. That's where this church has blossomed. So these people are caught in the middle and they're growing abundantly. I want that. I want that. So Paul helps them stand firm. Paul offers words of encouragement which allow them to keep growing and keep standing and to endure. And here's what he gave them. And it's, it's, it's splendid. It's lovely. It is a vision. It is a picture of their future. He gave them a future. He showed them a picture. Paul helped them see that even even their murky middle was a part of something bigger. Well, what was that picture? Well, it was a picture of the day of the Lord. That's the heart of this chapter in verses 5 through 10. The day of the Lord. God, Paul gives them a picture of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the most encouraging picture I can ever see to help me stand firm in suffering. If you are experiencing difficulty and difficulty because of your faith, God, give me something that will help me work through the middle to the end. Give me something that will keep me from ringing the bell. Paul gives them a picture, a stunning high-definition picture of the day of the Lord. And what I want to do is I want to tell you what that day is, what it is. I want to answer two questions. What it is and what it means. What it is and what it means. Well, what it is is this. The day of the Lord in the Bible, Christianity teaches that one day the true emperor of the universe will make his appearance. He will visit us. The true king. And who is this sovereign head of state? Nothing less than the crucified, dead, buried, raised, ascended, and enthroned son of the most high, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Or as Paul says, Jesus Christ revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 7. Note the word revealed. Revealed at the carefully chosen word. The implication is this. Christ is ruling even now, but it's hidden. His rule is hidden. Yet on the day, that which is hidden will be revealed. Hey, listen, listen. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not in charge. And on that day, history will culminate in what Paul says in verse 5, The righteous judgment of God. The righteous judgment of God. What Paul is saying to hurting Christians then and now is that the righteous judgment of God is the best 
and most glorious news for God's people. It's the most encouraging truth I can hear to help me stand firm in all of the persecutions and hardships I am enduring. The righteous judgment of God. Now, let's just push the pause button because I know what maybe some of you might be thinking. Righteous judgment of God. This is why I stopped going to church. Right? Pastors getting up and ranting and raving on about judgment and judgment day and this and that. I totally, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Okay? I totally understand. Um, can I just ask you this question? Have you ever been a victim of injustice? Have you ever been the injured party of a crime? Did did anybody see the front page of the News Gazette this morning? Got it right here. Headlines. This morning's News Gazette. Seeking closure. Who is this? Tony Cassano. Who is she? Her daughter, Holly, was murdered five years ago. Her killer has not been found. She's got a t-shirt, Hope for Holly. Listen to this. I quote, The unsolved case is always on her mother's mind. Always. Mom says, Every minute of every day, every day of every week, Every week of every month, everything I do, I think about her before I do it. You know what that is? That's a cry for justice. That's a cry for justice. So, yeah, I understand what our post-modern, post-liberal culture has to think about judgment and the negative overtones for those in that culture. But... The idea of a righteous reckoning in that situation is something that's being longed for. Wouldn't you agree that in a world of systematic injustice and bullying and violence and murder and theft and arrogance and oppression, wouldn't you agree that the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due, can't that be the best news ever? Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, wouldn't you agree that a good God must be a God of judgment and justice? See, Christianity says yes. God is just. The very foundations of his throne are righteousness and justice. That's what it is, the day of the Lord. It'll be a day of justice. Christianity teaches that one day every person will answer to absolute, perfect, undiluted, righteous judgment of God. That's what it is. Now, here's what it means. It means the righteous, think about this. The righteous judgment of God means that when we suffer, God is paying attention. The righteous judgment of God says that God is taking note of our lives and how we respond and what we say and how we live. The righteous judgment of God means that we are worthy of God's evaluation. We matter. And every one of us in this room has a deep-seated longing to matter. 
We, we live in this sea of humanity and we, and we wonder, does my life matter or is my life just another life? You know, I've given my life to, and you fill in the blank. I've given my life to my marriage. I've given my life to my children. I've given my life to my vocation. I've given my life to the service of my country, to the ministry, to education, to medicine, to law enforcement. Did it count for something or is it for nothing? Will someone remember me or will I be forgotten? The poet wrote, is it chance or dance moves the world? Is the world blind and dumb or bloom, festal, a vain jest or a holy feast? The righteous judgment of God says, holy feast. The righteous judgment of God says, bloom, festal. The righteous judgment of God says that this world is a dance. And you matter. And therefore, no gift that you make, no service you render, no compassion you show, no mercy you share, none of these ever, ever escape the watchful eye of a just and loving king. He sees it all. You see, you see either you believe the righteous judgment of God where nothing is forgotten and thus everything means something, or you simply believe that we're born and we live and we die And then one of these days the sun will flame out and the planet will freeze and and then nothing means anything. So which is it? Which do you believe? Either everything means something or nothing means anything. What do you believe in? Do you believe in chance or the dance? The righteous judgment of God says you matter. I'll tell you something else. The righteous judgment of God means that one day at last we will see the judge. And what a splendid sight that will be because we know who the judge is. Jesus. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And in verse 8, the phrase flaming fire in this verse refers not to hell but to the revealing of Jesus. His spectacular appearance. Every eye will see him. He will be visible in every way to everyone. And then, and then, the righteous judgment of God means that when Christ is revealed, he will give every human being in the life to come what it is he or she is longed for most in this life. Let me say that again. When the Lord Jesus is revealed on the day, he will give us forever that which we have longed for most here. And we see that played out in two groups, verses 5 through 10. Two groups, two desires, and two destinies. The terrible tormentors and the sacred sufferers. Paul describes the terrible tormentors as those who've spent a lifetime not knowing God and not believing the gospel and not respecting God's people. By their life and by their lips, they've said, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't need God. I don't believe God exists. I am my own God. Leave me alone, God. There is no God. They do not know God. So in the afterlife, the king simply says, very well. 
I will give you forever what you've always wanted here. You want a distance between us? I will create distance between us. You don't want me to love you anymore? Then I won't love you anymore. You lived as if I didn't exist. I will place you where I don't exist. From now on, you will be, verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And church family, that's about the simplest definition of hell that I can find. Away from the presence of the Lord. Everlasting destruction is life shut out from the presence of the Lord. G.K. Chesterton was a Christian author and thinker, lived a hundred years ago, and this is what he said, hell is God's great complement to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. And C.S. Lewis put it this way, the door of hell is locked from the inside. From the inside. Someone might say, well, why don't they just unlock it and let themselves out? Who would stubbornly stay in a place of eternal torment? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? Have you ever been wrong, but you're just too stubborn to admit it? Hmm? Too proud? Too arrogant? On the one hand, you know you're wrong. You're busted. But on the other hand, you know, your ego just won't budge. And as a result... You've shut off community from those who love you. And you've made your own life a little hell. Okay? Now multiply that by infinity. See, the ultimate tragedy for any human being is that having been created by God in the image of God, like God, and for God, The ultimate tragedy is to spend eternity without God. And and so instead of being fulfilled and flourishing and growing abundantly, we shrink and we shrivel until all that remains of us is the shrivel. The righteous judgment of God will only give you what you've been after all of your life. That's true of the terrible tormentors. And you know what? It's true of the sacred sufferers, the second group. The sacred sufferers who have become experts at loving one another in a thousand little ways. Their patience with one another, their help to the frail, their constant prayers, their attitude of joy, their their openness and examination of the Spirit's promptings. All of these, in all of these ways, they've been advancing and growing and standing firm even while they're in the middle. And why? Why do they do this? What motivates them? They want Jesus. More than anything else, they want Jesus. And in verse 10, on the day, they get him. They get what they've wanted all of their lives. Verse 10, he will be glorified in his saints and marveled at by all who have believed. On that day, we will marvel and worship and serve our king. Now, and what do I mean by marvel? I don't merely just mean admire. I mean that we become so fixed on him, so preoccupied by him, so transformed 
by his power that we just lose all sense of selfishness or self-centeredness. We become so locked in on him that we just forget ourselves. You see, you see the new heavens and the new earth is not about what we're going to get or what we're going to receive or the fun we're going to have. It's about worshiping and serving Jesus in a redeemed world with redeemed bodies. Oh my goodness, we're going to be marveling at him And what is so marvelous about him? I'll tell you what's so marvelous about him. Jesus Christ is the only one who has actually passed through the righteous judgment of God. See, Christianity teaches that there is one who has already experienced the righteous judgment of God. One person has been shut out from the presence of God. When Christ was on the cross, something happened to him that made his hell deeper than anyone's. And here's what I mean. See, Jesus faced his heavenly father all of his life. Every word he spoke, every act he performed, he did to please his heavenly father, and he pleased him. And yet on the cross, his father turned his back. Christ was shut out and away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. You know, with everybody else, God faces us. And we turn our back in sin. And then ultimately, you know, he turns his back in eternity. But here, Jesus faced God always, always, always. But then the sun went out on him. And he died alone in darkness apart from his heavenly father. He was judged. He was declared guilty He was punished, though he did nothing wrong. Why? Why would this happen? 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us why. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He substituted himself for me and for my rebellion against the holy God. And you may push back and you may say, wait a minute, Randy, are you saying that my sin against God was that bad? Let me put it this way. Suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What do you think is going to happen? Kid's going to get suspended, huh? Well, suppose on the way home, that same boy punches a policeman on the nose. What do you think is going to happen? He's going to find himself under arrest. He may spend a day or two in juvie. Well, suppose some years later, the very same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the President of the United States. And as the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the President. What do you think is going to happen? He's going to be shot dead by the Secret Service. Now, in every case, the crime was precisely the same. But the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. I'll say that again. The severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. So then you tell me what comes from sinning against a holy God. What is just for that? And who will pay? Who will pay? You see, the question isn't, would a loving God really send people to hell? 
That's not the question. The question is this. Would a loving God really send his own son to hell? And the answer is he would and he did for us. For us. Jesus experienced the righteous judgment of God for us. And he satisfied it. And God the Father vindicated his son by raising him from the dead. And so on the day, verse 10, Jesus will be glorified in his people. It's not that Jesus will appear and his glory will be before us. Well, yes, but more than that, his glory will be in us. His glory will radiate in and through it among his people. Think light bulb filament. When the switches flip, the coil glows, and we will radiate the glory of Christ as we marvel in him. Now, you let that vision move you from the middle to the end. You let that vision keep you from ringing the bell. Stand firm, Paul says. Stand firm. So now what? Well, Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you. See? Well, so, so Paul prays in verses 11 and 12 that even now, in the middle, in suffering and persecution, Paul prays that God's people might radiate the glory of Christ. We don't have to wait until the day. It starts today, in the middle. The glory begins in the middle, the glory shines brightly in the middle. Christ is glorified in the middle. So pray. Pray. Then when there are people out there afflicting you and harassing you, when you're caught in the middle, what do you do? Paul says pray. Pray. What do I do? Pray that Jesus be the judge and not me. Because if Jesus is the judge, I don't have to be the judge. Listen, if you don't believe in the righteous judgment of God then you will almost always take on the role of judge for yourself and it will kill you because you're not qualified. You, you will end up with anger fantasies about what you want to see happen to those who hurt you and to some degree you might even help make it happen. You put on the robes of judgment and you'll suffocate. Some of you have been hurt badly by others and you think if you just knew why they did what they did looking for at least one good reason to make sense of it all, it would all go away. Here's the deal. Jesus knows why they did what they did. You don't need to know. You just need to marvel at him. You marvel your bitterness and anger away. Anybody in here worried? About what? Pray. Pray. See, see, you have a choice. You can either worry or you can marvel your worry away. Look at Jesus. If he would do what he did for you, do you think he's going to cheat you? You think he's going to con you? Can I not trust him in everything? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Anybody here irritated this morning? You woke up cranky? What's up with that? Well, you can choose to stay that way if you want. Hold up in your little hell. Or you can pray and marvel yourself into warmth and compassion. So what Paul prays for here 
is a community of people formed by God, glowing with marvel at their king, the king who is glorified in them. Pray. So who do you want to pray for today? We have elders that will be here at the front. They would be delighted to pray these prayers for you, that, that God would make you worthy of his calling, that God would fulfill every resolve for good in your life, that God would, would fulfill every work of faith by his power so that Christ would be glorified. Our elders would be happy and privileged to pray for you, but they're not the only qualified people to pray here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if throughout our facility here, just groups of two or three or four would gather, heads bowed in prayer, praying these prayers. To this end, in verses 11 and 12, our connection ministry will be out in the foyer. Listen, they would be delighted to pray with you. God, fulfill every resolve for good, even in the middle. God, complete every work of faith by your power. God, grow your church by this power. God, finish this campus improvement project by your power. God, bring our summer missions teams to fruition by your power all by your power. And our community, our Champaign-Urbana community witnesses this community. And they feel the glow and they wonder, who is your God? And we know the answer to that, don't we? His name is Jesus.